This is BT Techno, a regular podcast series for financial advisors wanting to remain at the forefront of strategy, regulatory and industry news. Hello and welcome to today's BT Techno podcast. My name is Brian Ashenden and I have the pleasure of leading the BT Technical Services team, a team of experts available to answer any advice, technical queries you may have about strategies for your clients. When it comes to planning how superannuation should be dealt to upon a member's death, the use of a binding nomination is often thought of as the simplest and easiest method, giving certainty on who gets what. But is that always the best solutions? Sometimes paying via an estate may be a better outcome, despite the potential challenges it could present. To unpack these issues more, this week I'm going to hand the microphone over to Erkin Bodek, one of BT's technical consultants, to delve into this issue more to uncover some of the benefits and the concerns in deciding whether to nominate an individual directly or to have super benefits pass via a person's estate. Erkin, over to you. Thanks very much, Brian. When it comes to super death benefit nominations, the first thing to work out for the account holder is who to nominate. To be able to nominate someone directly versus directing your benefits to your estate, which is then dictated by the will, the nominated persons must be assist dependents in order for the nomination to be valid. A quick recap on who are assist dependents. A spouse or a de facto partner, a child of any age, someone who is a financial dependent or someone who is in an interdependency relationship with the deceased. So this means any of these individuals can be nominated on a death benefit nomination form. What about tax consequences? There are at least two schools of thought when it comes to the tax implications of people bequeathing their hard-earned savings when they pass. One view is that whatever tax the beneficiaries will incur as a result of the inheritance they receive is their problem, and they should be lucky to be receiving windfall in the first instance. Why should I spend time and money so as to potentially minimise the tax that my beneficiary may pay in the future, and I don't even know if and how much I'll even bequeath to them? The other school of thought is... I hate paying tax, and nor should my beneficiaries pay any more tax than what they need to. A strong consideration in all of this could also be who in fact is the benefactor. If you were leaving wealth to your kids, you may care more for any tax implications versus leaving it for your favourite social club. So the good news is, is that most cis dependents are also tax dependents, which means there shouldn't be any death benefits tax incurred by them upon receipt of a super death benefit. Note, however, that if the account holder passed away with monies in accumulation phase, there may still be consequences within their super fund if assets need to be sold to cash. The main category of cis dependents who are not tax dependents are adult children. Children who are disabled or meet the definition of being financially dependent on the deceased are excluded from this, and are therefore tax dependents. So, there are two ways to pass on super and pension death benefits to adult children, either via a death benefit nomination or via the person's estate as directed by their will. By nominating adult children specifically, the trustee of the super fund pays the benefit to the beneficiary directly via either a binding or non-binding nomination. The most obvious point of difference is that Medicare levy is potentially payable by the recipient if they receive the death benefits directly versus no Medicare levy pay if 
versus no Medicare levy you've paid to them via the estate. The 2% Medicare levy on hundreds of thousands of dollars can easily add up to a few thousand dollars or even more. But dispersing the benefits via the estate adds an extra layer to the process and therefore a greater chance that the will itself could be challenged by other parties who feel as though they haven't received their fair share, whereas a valid death benefit nomination provides more certainty, even though in theory it too could be challenged under the notional estate provisions. This provision is unique to New South Wales, whereby non-estate assets such as superannuation could still be captured under a family provision claim. So the 2% Medicare levy saved might create other problems for the beneficiary when the estate is involved versus paying the benefits directly and more seamlessly, but most likely at the cost of the extra 2% Medicare levy payable. Aside from this, 15% tax is payable on the taxable component taxed element of a super death benefit, and 30% if there is an untaxed element. No tax is deducted from the tax-free component of a super death benefit, regardless of who the beneficiary is. The taxable component element taxed would generally comprise of concessional contributions, any TPD insurance amount paid into the person's super account, and any growth whilst in accumulation phase. And an untaxed element would arise if a deduction for life insurance cover was claimed in the super account, or if the super fund was an untaxed scheme. So these taxes are paid regardless of whether benefits flow directly to the beneficiary or is done via the deceased person's estate. If a person's death benefits are being paid out via their estate, the trustee of the estate will be responsible for deducting the required 15% death benefits tax from the taxable component, element tax, and 30% from the taxable component, element untaxed. The beneficiary does not report the death benefit received by them in their tax return. So the process is fairly simple. The trustee of the super fund pays the benefits to the deceased person's estate, and the trustee of the estate distributes the benefits according to the deceased person's hopefully valid will. It's a two-step process, but keep in mind what I said earlier, where wills can be challenged. If a valid death benefit nomination exists, the trustee of the super fund will distribute the benefits as per the wishes of the deceased member, especially if it's a binding nomination. Non-binding nominations can sometimes cause issues in that they too can be challenged, especially in situations where there are blended families. So ideally, if using this method to distribute super death benefits, a valid binding death nomination should be put into place. There are many instances where non-binding nomination situations have ended up in the courts, and many of these end up being legal matters. So hopefully we have a valid binding nomination, and the benefits are paid out to the nominated beneficiaries as per the wishes of the account holder. The trustee of the super fund will deduct the death benefits tax before paying out the death benefit based on who the beneficiaries are, but crucially, the beneficiary is required to report the death benefit in their individual tax return, and herein lies the potential for flow-on consequences. Whilst the recipient will receive a tax offset to ensure that the tax they ultimately pay on the taxable component will not exceed 17% on the taxed element and 32% for the untaxed element, 
the total taxable component is still added to their assessable income. Now, it doesn't push their other income from employment or investments into a higher tax bracket, as the death benefit is seen as their top slice of income, and the ATO calculates and applies the required amount of tax offset so that the final tax on the taxable component of the death benefit is either the 17% or 32%, as I've just mentioned. However, receiving a substantial taxable death benefit has potential implications for other things such as family tax benefit, Part A and B, Division 293 tax, private health insurance tax offset, and pretty much anything else which looks at adjusted taxable income, such as Centrelink health concession cards and the government co-contribution. Note, however, that JobSeeker, Disability Support Pension, or the Age Pension, are not impacted by a super death benefit, well, from an income test perspective, although, of course, if the capital amount received will still be deemed if it's sitting in a bank account or a financial asset. A quick recap of the Family Tax Benefit Part A Income Test. The first family income threshold is 56137 before payments reduced by 20 cents in the dollar, and then 99864 before payments reduced by 30 cents in the dollar. Receiving a moderately sized death benefit with a taxable component could easily knock out Family Tax Benefit Part A for a family for that financial year. For a family with two teenage children, this could mean up to $14,500 in Family Tax Benefit Part A payments foregone if the family income increased from the lower threshold to above the upper threshold. But Family Tax Benefit Part B, which is payable for one child, again, a benefit payment of up to $4,600 per annum could be lost if either parent received a taxable super death benefit. Division 293 tax is an additional tax of 15% levied on concessional contributions where an individual's taxable income exceeds $250,000. An individual who ordinarily does not need to worry about this tax may be subject to it if they've had a one-off spike in their taxable income as a result of receiving a taxable super death benefit. Eligible contributions which may be subject to Division 293 tax also include any carry-forward concessional contributions that a person may make in the relevant year. It is conceivable that you, would have a, that you could have a situation where a person wishes to make a larger contribution in a given year, but if they find that they are over the $250,000 income threshold, this larger contribution will be subject to an additional 15% tax and as a result, they may wish to reassess whether this is a viable strategy in that financial year. Private health insurance rebates help with making private health insurance premiums slightly more affordable, and there are income tiers for the rebate, which reduce as family income increases. The rebate for the 2020-21 financial year ranges from 24.6%, where a single person has income below $90,000, and a family below $180,000, it reduces firstly to 16.4% and then to 8.2% for the next $15,000 and then $35,000 increase in income for a single person or $30,000 and then $70,000 increase for a family before ceasing altogether once a single person's income exceeds $140,000 
or family income exceeds $280,000. For a typical annual family gross premium of $7,800, this could mean losing an offset of up to $2,000. Other Centrelink concession cards, such as the Commonwealth Seniors Health Card or Low Income Healthcare Card, also look at adjusted taxable income, so these cards could also potentially be lost. At the time of establishing instructions, the trustee of your super fund can't determine what is and what isn't a valid death benefit nomination, so it's up to the account holder and their advisor to ensure this is indeed the case. Otherwise, what typically happens when there is an invalid death benefit nomination is that either the entire nomination is invalidated with the likely outcome that the entire benefit is paid to the deceased person's estate, or the share of the death benefit for the person who isn't an eligible nominee is paid to the estate, or the trustee elects to seek out or invite other eligible beneficiaries to make a claim, all subject to the governing rules of the relevant super fund. When seeking to establish who are financial dependents and interdependents, the trustee will ask for supporting evidence at the time of claim to validate the death benefit nomination. Whilst nominating individuals specifically, as opposed to having your benefits go to the estate first, may keep a person's instructions more simple to execute, there may be flow-on consequences to the recipients. So depending on how important this is to the person passing on their benefits, they may wish to give some more consideration as to how they structure their estate planning affairs. Or maybe not. Well, that's it from me. Back to you, Brian. Thanks, Erkin. Certainly a lot of important information to digest and consider, but well worth doing to ensure super death benefits can be planned for in the most appropriate manner. Now remember, if you have any technical advice strategy questions, you can access the expertise of Erkin and the rest of the BT Technical Services team on 1800 655 901 or send the team an email at technical at btfinancialgroup.com. And join us for our fortnightly BT Academy technical webinars, where we delve into all things technical and regulatory. Our next fortnightly webinar will be held on Wednesday the 22nd of September 2021, when I'll be asking and answering the question, are there wholesale changes coming to advice? October 2021 will bring a number of regulatory changes to advisors and advice practices, from the implementation of the DDO regime through to breach reporting obligations and dispute resolution processes. And in this session, we'll provide a reminder on these impending changes, as well as explore the definition of who can qualify as a wholesale client for advice purposes. To register, head to www.bt.com.au forward slash professional and follow the links to the BT Academy Technical Webinar Series. You can also view our previous webinars and all sessions are accredited for CPD purposes. Until next time, bye for now. BT Tech knows and now you know. Join us next time to keep ahead of the curve for strategy, regulatory and industry news. This podcast has been developed for financial advisor use only and provides general information only. It does not take into account any particular individual's objectives, financial situations or needs.